Well, our youngest daughter turned 17 this month. Yes, indeed. Makes us old. Makes us old. There's going to be a slide that's going to pop up on the screen. It's a picture of her. I know. Isn't she precious? She was on video announcements tonight. That's our daughter, Claire. And this saying that's to the left of the picture of this cute, little, delightful little girl was one of her favorite sayings when she was a child. She didn't raise her voice. She didn't scream. She wasn't angry. Just this much of her, all the confidence in the world, she would look up at Vanessa and I, and we're, we're not small people. She would look up at us, and she would say, you know, say no to me. You know, say no to me. Right? Now, we knew she's going to be just fine in this world with that attitude. And then character, right, comes in and begins to take that defiance and, and sanctifies it into confidence, but the sentiment that was in her heart as a child, all of us are born with that, whether or not we have ever uttered those words in the way that she said it or not. See, this new series that we're launching in is exploring this idea of our human nature that in our smallness, as little as we are, looking up at the bigness of God, the perfectness of God, and all of who he is in his divinity, and we hold our little finger up at him, and we say to him, more often than we would probably admit, you know, say no to me. Because God has a lot to say about how we're supposed to live our lives. He has a lot to say about things that we're supposed to start doing. He's got a lot to say about things that we're supposed to stop doing. And our human nature has a lot to say to him in response. And more often than not, it is not yes. It is you know, say no to me. Did you know that in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, the word for hear or the word for listen also means to obey? Did you know that in the Hebrew language, there are not separate words for listening and obedience? There is not a separate word for hearing and doing. It is one word, and it's two sides of the same coin. It's the word Shema, which is the title of this series. Matthew 7, 24 to 29, if you've spent time in the Bible for any amount of time, you know that one of Jesus' greatest sermons that's recorded for us is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 24, the first three words are, anyone who listens. Now, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus says this to a predominantly Jewish audience, they knew what he was talking about. He was talking about Shema. He was saying, you can't hear me and walk away and not do what I say. You're not free to look at me in response to what I'm saying and say, you know, say no to me. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise. Shema. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock, though the rain comes and torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears, Shema, my teachings and doesn't obey is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come, the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. What does that mean? He taught with the authority of Shema. He taught with the kind of authority that said, there should be no difference for my words and you for listening and obedience. There's not Shema with people. We understand with people. We don't give them that kind of trust. As adults, we're supposed to weigh and decide if these are words that we should obey and follow. But the mistake we make is we take our interactions with each other and we bring that into our relationship with God. They were astounded by his authority because it was a Shema authority. They were astounded by his authority because Jesus was saying, when you hear me, you should obey. Listening and doing with God should be two sides of the same coin. You know, when I was growing up and played sports, we'd have to get an annual physical, and one of the things that they would do is the patella reflex test. Anybody had that done before, right, in the doctor's office? You got your knee hanging over the side of the table, and they take this little hammer, and they tap you right here below your kneecap. I remember thinking as a kid, you're, you're relaxing. I remember thinking, I'm not going to move my leg. I'm not going to move my leg. I'm not going to move my leg. They tap you with that hammer and your leg moves. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a reflex. What they're actually doing, it's not a physical test, it's a neurological test. They want to see if your brain and your body is communicating the way that it's supposed to. I share that with you because I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. Because I don't know about you, my reflex has a tendency to be, you know, say no to me more often than it should. That when God asks something of me, when I'm reading this book and I find that my life is out of alignment, either with something that I'm supposed to start doing or something that I'm supposed to stop doing, is, is it like being in the doctor's office where someone taps my knee and my leg moves? Because that's how I want my heart to respond to my creator See, Matthew 7, 28 to 29 isn't just a synopsis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it is most certainly that, but it's also more. It's Jesus making an accusation about human nature. Jesus is saying to us that we are born into this world without our Shema, that we have lost our Shema. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, and all of his other teachings, he's teaching towards what he intends to restore. Let me say that again. Jesus is teaching toward what he intends and hopes to restore. When we look in the book of Genesis, in the creation narrative, in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we do not find Satan coming to Adam and Eve and saying, listen, I got a deal for you. I want you to disobey God and you're going to lose everything in your life that is sacred and the perfectness of this world that you've been created into is all going to be lost. What do you think? Right? That's not the offer he made because he knows what the response would have been. It's interesting to me as you read the conversation between Satan and Adam and Eve, he does not introduce them to rebellion. That's not where he starts. He starts by introducing them to reluctance because he knows that if he can insert 
into mankind's relationship with God a question of should I, then he's won. Then he's won. And we know the rest of that story. See, there's a scale that I want to show you tonight. Rebellious, reluctant, and reflexive. Those are our three choices. And I would suggest to you that every area of our lives falls onto this scale in all kinds of different places. And some of the things that God expects of us by way of starting to do or stopping to do, we are reflexive. Shema is present. There are other areas where we are reluctant. We know that we should, but we don't want to. We're wrestling with whether or not there's going to be a change. And then there's just others. Whether you, whether you want to realize it or not, all of us, there are things in our lives where we're just rebellious about. This idea of Shema is about closing the reflex gap of our hearts and going on a journey for the rest of our lives to taking the things that are rebellious and let's move them into reluctance and then all the things that are reluctance, let's get them into reflexive. We're not ever gonna get all the way there, but can we just agree we're supposed to be closer tomorrow than we are today? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to say these words, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about Shema. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you know that heaven is a completely reflexive environment? The angels aren't up there trying to figure out whether or not they're going to do what God says. That's already happened once and that didn't turn out so well. There's no cable news network in heaven. Reporting to you live outside the throne room of God who just delivered an edict and I've got a panel of expert angels and we're going to decide together whether or not we're going to follow. That's supposed to be part of the human experience. It's not part of the heaven experience. Because there is a reflexive response to who God is in the heavens. And God is saying to you and to me, how about we practice here before we get there? How about we begin to learn how to respond to him in his divinity and his perfectness that he always has our best interest at heart even if it seems like it's going to cost us everything God is saying, I'm in this for you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That statement, that phrase is supposed to be the sentiment of my heart in every area of my life. All the things that he wants me to start doing, all the things that he wants me to stop doing. If you're a homeowner like we are, you have probably done a home renovation project at some point. And if you've done enough home renovation projects, then you know that there are multipliers that you have to bring to the equation. There is a cost multiplier. We have found that it always costs twice as much as what we think it might. There is a time multiplier. Everybody's time multiplier is different. Ours is times three. It takes three times as long as we think. If we think that it's gonna take an hour and $250, right? Three hours later and $500 later, we're finally done. We have also found that it is always inevitably harder than we thought. 
in the sense that I think that I have the ability and the skill that I need to do what I'm about to do, but what I've learned, right, not only does it cost twice as much, take three times the amount of time it's supposed to, but I realize I always end up feeling like I have half the knowledge that I need to get it done right. A few years ago, I'm texting Nathaniel Miller, who's here tonight, pictures of this nest of wires that appeared behind the wall outlet and our kitchen for a ceiling fan that I was trying to... It was as though all the wiring of the house came through that one switch. And I'm like, I have no idea what all of these wires are for, and I'm taking pictures and sending it to Nathaniel because I know he knows how to figure that out. Alan Smith, who's probably watching on home, if I could show you my text feed, thousands of texts every time I try to do a car project. Alan, what does this do? Sending him pictures. You and I in this journey, in this life, as a devoted follower of Christ, we are going to feel ill-equipped. We're going to feel like we don't have what it takes. We're going to feel like it costs us more than we think it should. It's going to take longer than we want it to take. We feel like we might not make it or be able to get it done. Welcome to the renovation of the heart because that experience isn't going to change. What it feels like is not going to change, but what Jesus says to you and to me is it will be worth it along the way. Jeremiah 17, five through 10 reads this way. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about the forsaking of the Shema. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Shema. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They're like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought, their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. That's verse nine, I'll stop there. So good. A plant is the perfect metaphor for the human heart when it comes to what Shema is supposed to look like. Because no plant that's ever been on this earth from the beginning of time came into the sunrise and said, I'm not going to respond to the sun today. I'm saying no to photosynthesis. Not going to do it. They could try all they wanted. But a plant's going to do what a plant's going to do when the sunlight shines upon it. It's in its nature, by God's design. And the prophet Jeremiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit here in this text, is drawing the comparison of the human heart and the plant for a reason. Because he's saying this is part of the journey of the re re renovation of the heart that we're supposed to be working towards. Reflexive obedience, like when the sun shines upon nature. Have you found your Shema? 
If we want the reflex of our hearts to be one of obedience to God, a return to Shema, then we must do the hard work that transforms it from being desperately wicked, as Jeremiah calls it, to one of being delightfully worshipful, which he also calls it by way of comparison. It's going to take longer, it's going to cost more, and it's going to be harder than we think. Enter a Jesuit priest by the name of Don Gelpi. He lived from 1934 to 2011. He's one of the greatest theological minds of our day. And in the late 1960s, early in his career, Gelpi became involved with what became known as the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement. And through his involvement, Gelpi encountered an emotional and spiritual transformation characterized by a profound form of prayer and intensely deep relationship with God. He later described this as his personal Pentecost. And Don Gelpi introduced to the world what he calls the five conversions of the soul or the five conversions of the heart. I remember reading about these a couple of years ago in a book called Moses in Pharaoh's House by John J. Markey. And as I was reading about John Gelpie's teachings here by Markey in this book, I was also doing a study on this word Shema. I was contemplating about whether or not we were going to do a series. If you remember, a little over a year ago, we got into this series, but then COVID happened and then we changed things up. We're coming back to it now. But I remember as I began to read about these conversions, while at the same time I was doing a separate study on Shema, I had this prompting of the Holy Spirit that was, Fred, these conversions are a key to the Shema. That the renovation that needs to happen in the heart for us to become reflexively obedient is dependent on these five conversions. Because so many of us who have spent our lives in the church, we're familiar with the idea of a religious conversion, but unless we're willing to do the heavy lifting of all the other ways that we have to be converted, the transformational journey that's supposed to happen in us, we will never find our Shema. We will spend the rest of our lives in a place of reluctance or rebellion instead of finding the experience of reflexive obedience. There's a diagram that's on the screen here. This is what we're teaching you through this series. But I believe as we do the heavy lifting of these five conversions, what you're going to find, this diamond is going to collapse into a vertical line. If you're going to close your listening and doing, your hearing and obedience gap, I want those two things to converge and come together. It's dependent upon me doing the renovation of the heart through these five conversions. The first one is this. It's called the effective conversion. It happens when a person takes personal responsibility for his or her emotional healing and development. All of us come into this life when we make a vow of devotion to Christ at some point with brokenness from our past. Even if you grew up in the best of homes, I'm telling you, you're carrying hurts from your parents that you don't even know that you carry. If you've experienced trauma in this life, if you've experienced betrayal in this life, the soul wounds just like these physical bodies. You don't see the cuts, but they're real, and they're there, and they bleed. And part of this journey in this life 
is going on a walk with the Holy Spirit through the rest of our days and asking him to begin to show us the areas of our hearts that are broken and following him down a path of renewal and healing. I have covenant community written there on the bottom of the slide because I believe that you will never experience a true effective conversion in isolation. This is part of the gift that the church is to the world. One of the reasons why Jesus created it. Is it a mechanism for, for, for taking the gospel to a lost world? It absolutely is. But you, you know what also it is? It's supposed to be a place of healing for the broken. The church is called a covenant community because we come together in a covenant relationship. Means, it means that it is defined by love and devotion for one another. It means that we're for one another. It means that we care about and care for one another, even at our own expense and at our own cost. And until you enter into covenant relationships and a covenant community through a local church home, I'm telling you, you will not build the kind of relationships with people who begin to help you see the brokenness in your life because they love you enough to point something out. An attitude that keeps maybe coming for you. Maybe distrust, patterns, relationships with loving, caring people that go beyond the superficial where we care about each other enough to help point out the brokenness that is there. We believe in Christian counseling. We believe in small groups, especially that are gender specific. We've got a group of women that meet regularly. They met this morning called The Well. We've got a group of men that meet regularly called Base Camp. You gotta find yourself into gender specific small group settings where you can build trusting relationships, where people can get to know you and help you begin to see the brokenness that's in your life. Effective conversion. There's intellectual conversion. Involves taking responsibility for the truth or falsity of one's beliefs by examining and testing them. If you don't think that there's any falsity in your life, if you think that you're right about everything that I would like to suggest to you, you just found the first thing that you're wrong about. This is part of community too, which is one of the reasons why we believe that diverse community is important. If you're only ever around people that think the same way that you do about everything, we call that an echo chamber. And that's not a good place to live. If you think that God is always on your side every time, that's a modern day Pharisee. All of us have things in our lives that we're wrong about and we don't realize that we're wrong about until we get married. Because that's a covenant relationship too. There's things that we don't realize we're wrong about until we find ourselves in these covenant communities and people love us enough to say, wait, could, what was that you, you just said? Could we talk about that? People oftentimes run from the very churches that they should be running deeper into and the reason why they run from them is because they've spent their whole life looking for an echo chamber and I would say to you there's nothing about Christianity that looks like that. Covenant communities where there can be healing for brokenness, diverse communities for intellectual conversion, and then there's moral conversion. 
It, it means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral virtues one has embraced and to live according to a broader social responsibility. This is why City Life Church is also a discipleship community. We're a discipleship culture here. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody on a blue shirt. They'll give you one of those little green books for free called Praxis. All of us have a morality gap. All of us have a list of things that we believe are right and wrong. Hopefully it's instructed by this book. None of us are living according to that completely and fully. If we were, then we would be the second coming of Christ because he's the only person that's ever walked perfectly in this world. All of us have a morality gap. And being a part of a discipleship community, being a part of a discipleship culture means that I don't want to settle and accept the gap that I have. I want the things that I believe to be true, the things that I believe to be right, and the things that I believe to be wrong, and the things that I believe to be false, I want that to be reflected in my attitudes and my actions and my values. Oh, you don't want this next one. A socio-political conversion involves accepting responsibility to seek the good for all humans and to work strategically with others to challenge and convert the wider world as well. So good. And if you'll notice there on the slide, it says a loving community because that's also part of the culture of city life. A loving community. See, this idea of a social political conversion, at some point you've got to stop wanting the world to just serve you. And at some point you've got to say, I, I recognize that there are other people in this world who have different needs than I have. And I've got to be willing to forgo some of my needs being met so that the needs of others can be met. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like the example that Jesus gives to me. Because if Jesus was only in it for his needs, you know what you and I would be? We would still be dead in our sin. Too many of us, myself included, I've been in knee-deep in my socio-political conversion for the last two years, much to many of your frustrations. We have adopted this mindset and mentality that is completely and totally secular of demonizing people that disagree with us. Why do we do that? Because if I could make that person my enemy, listen to me, if I can make that person my enemy, then I feel as though I'm not responsible to be concerned about their needs anymore. There's nothing about that in Christianity. Even if that person is your enemy, Jesus has something to say about how you should treat and respond to that person in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's called love. Too many of us, especially in America, are failing in the socio-political conversion, and we have forsaken Jesus' new commandment. Jesus said, that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. But then just a few days later, he said, a new command I give to you. What's the new command? The new command, he says, now I want you to love people the way that I've loved you. See, he started by saying, love people the way that you love yourself. 
right? The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's still a part of Christianity. But Jesus says, we're just practicing there. That's just to get you warmed up. Because really what I expect of you is for you to love other people the way that I love you. And if you've read this book, you know what this book says about you and me? That we are born into this world and it is as though we are enemies to God. The nature of our humanity, we are separated from him. And if it were not for the grace of Christ and his death on the cross, what we call the gospel, there would be no hope of us being reconciled to him. Paul wrote in Romans that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, the enemies of God, sinners, he died for us. Where are you on your socio-political conversion? We just can't be in this thing called life for our own benefit, for our own good. For our own way. I saved this fifth one for last because if you don't start here, you're not going to get very far on the other four. Now, you can make some progress on the other four, but you won't go as deep as you need to. This one I have rephrased because I want the language to match theologically what we believe. And so in my notes here, I have an asterisk here. The other definitions follow pretty closely to what Gelpie taught. But I've rephrased this one in my own words for us. Religious conversion begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of my life. And that means that we are a gospel community. We're gospel-centric. We believe that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. We don't deserve it. It's by God's grace. And Jesus has made it clear that there's only one way to heaven and to be reconciled to the Father, and that's through him. A covenant community, a diverse community, a discipleship community, a loving community, a gospel community, because we believe in doing the work of effective conversion, intellectual conversion, moral conversion, socio-political conversion, religious conversion, because we want to close the listening and obeying gap, the hearing and doing gap. We want to do the work of the renovation of the heart. We're going to put the diagram back up there. You're going to be seeing that a lot in the series, the Shema Diamond. Each week, we're going to spend on one of these conversions, taking a deeper dive. Our hope is that just like we came out of the Doxa series, that you did some practical work. I hope you're going to do some practical work in this series. Each week, we want to give you some practical steps that you can take. Tonight's about introducing you to them. Rebellious, reluctant, or reflexive. This is how you measure your progress. If a year from now, if you're trying to figure out as you dive into these conversions, how much progress are you making, then think of some things. Maybe if, you're, if you journal, whatever you do to keep track of just what's going on in your heart, maybe you're going to write down some things over the next several weeks that you struggle with. Maybe you're going to pick just a couple of things that you're rebellious in, a couple of things that you are reluctant in, that you know you need to get to a place of being reflexive. A year from now, if you've done some of the heavy lifting of these conversions, you're going to feel some shift 
shifting and movement in your heart. There's hope. Come on, somebody say hope. John 1.14, and the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, listen to this, full of grace and truth. These are two important words for us on this journey. Two important words for us about every aspect of our lives as devoted followers of Christ, but they're two important words especially for this idea of Shema and the renovation of the heart because this word for truth is aletheia and the word for grace here is charis. And I share that with you because aletheia here in John 1.14 reminds us that all truth is in Jesus. We don't have to go anywhere else to find truth other than him. He's got it all. All truth is in Jesus, which means I must constantly examine my life in light of his. He's the standard. Charis means all grace is in Jesus, which means my ability to change depends on his power. Jesus is both the standard, but he's not just there saying, be like me, good luck. He's saying, let me give you this thing called grace. Because if you only understand grace as permission, meaning that it's okay to sin because you're forgiven, then you misunderstand the doctrine of grace. Grace is not about permission. Grace is about power and the power to change. All grace is in Jesus, which means my ability to change depends on his power. 1 Samuel 10, 17 to 24 reads this way. Later, Samuel called all the people of Israel to meet before the Lord at Mizpah. And he said, this is what the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, has declared. I brought you from Egypt and rescued you from the Egyptians and from all the nations that were oppressing you. But though I have rescued you from your misery and distress, you have rejected your God today and have said, no, we want a king instead. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and clans. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel before the Lord and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen by Lot. And then he brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord and the family of the Matrites were chosen. And finally, Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. This is the moment in history where Israel finds its first king. It says that finally Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for them, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, where is he? I love here that it doesn't say they asked each other. They're like, God, can you see him? I know you can see him. And the Lord replied, he is hiding among the baggage. So they found him and brought him out, and he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. Then Samuel said to all the people, this is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in all of Israel is like him. But yet when his moment came, he was hiding amongst the luggage. I'm sharing that with you tonight because my guess is probably none of us here are ever going to be called the king of a nation. But it does not mean that your purpose is any less significant than that of Saul's. God creates each one of us for a purpose. I was praying over this message today and this is a thought I had that, that it's not like filmmaking where sometimes God just needs some extras. 
You know how you're watching a movie and there's all those people you don't know who they are? They're just extras that come on the set. God, God doesn't do extras. You have a purpose. He created you because he, there's a calling on your life. And I believe this story is prophetically significant for us because so many times before we're able to step into our purpose that he has for us, we find ourselves hiding in the baggage. I believe this picture of Saul hiding amongst the luggage and hiding in the baggage, it's a prophetic picture of being clothed in our humanity. It's a prophetic picture of being clothed in our humanity. See, before you and I can fulfill the purposes that God has for us, this is important, We've got to be willing to disrobe of our humanity and begin to put on the garments of righteousness that he has for us. And these five conversions are about the disrobing of our souls. Disrobing of the garments that don't belong and putting on only the ones that come from him. You're called to a purpose. And we have to be clothed by the one that called us to that purpose. It's why in Matthew 22, 1 through 14, I'm going to invite the band to come back up as we prepare to go into this final worship song. In Matthew 22, 1 through 14, that's this incredible parable that Jesus says that, that someone sets this, this incredible feast and people begin to make excuses of why they don't want to come and why they can't come. And then, and then the, 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 the person who's established this feast says, let's just go out everywhere into the highways and byways and, and everybody who we weren't otherwise going to invite, let's let them come in. The next thing you know, the connotation of this parable is that this feast is just packed full of people. And then Jesus says the person that was the head of the feast, the head of the banquets, walking around and finds someone who's not wearing the right robe. They don't have the right clothes on. And the parable says this person is thrown out and killed. You're like, wow, that's a little harsh. You have a party, no one wants to come, then you let these other people come, and because they're not dressed the right way, you're going to... Throw them out and kill them? What's that story about? It's about wearing the right robes. It's a story about there's only one way to heaven. Because that's the great feast that Jesus was talking about. That's the banquet hall that we're all called to. And the only way that we're ever going to be able to find our way into that feast is if we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus in this parable is saying to you and to me, that's non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. But I would suggest to you in this series that the robe of righteousness that we take on, that he puts on us when we make a vow of devotion to him, it's just the first of many robes that he wants to clothe us with. There is a lifetime that we will spend shedding the garments of our humanity and taking on the garments of the righteousness of Christ over and over and over again. And the farther that we travel, the more we're willing to change our clothes, something incredible begins to happen to our heart. 
This idea of you know say no to me just begins to fade into the background. And a reflexive moment of yes spills from our soul. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I I pray that that conversation that we need to have with your Holy Spirit would begin even tonight. Maybe one of those conversions that came onto that screen that somebody here or somebody watching from home, they just, they felt something tug at their heart because that's where you want them to get started. And people are going to go on this journey with you, Lord. And we're going to go on this journey with each other. And let it be that we would come out the other side different than when we started. In Christ's name, come on, let's worship together.